0: Today, I have a very special guest. We've known each other for a few years and actually reached out to her a long time ago when I started my private practice, and she was a just a wealth of knowledge. So I'm really so excited to invite Dr. Jenna Kazzel to the podcast today to talk about private practice. There's so much to know. It can be very intimidating if you're not aware of what some of the things to look out for are. And so we're going to talk about the benefits and the pitfalls. So Dr. Kazzel, Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little
1: bit about yourself. You know, how did you kind of fall into this path of private practice? So um, I did a general surgery residency and then did a vascular fellowship. And when I was looking for jobs, um, I knew where the fellow ahead of me had looked for jobs and I would interview and then they would offer me anywhere from 50 to $100,000 less than what they were given to give him. And I knew what the MGMA ranges were, and I really didn't find anything fair. I was pregnant at the time. And um, in the area where my husband grew up, where he had a house, you know, there were some surgeons that had just retired. And so he said, you know, you can do this. We can do this. And I was like, I I don't know. You know, we couldn't even um, get an income subsidy from a hospital because I was pregnant. They had us and they dropped us once they found out that I was carrying twins, Um, and he's like, well, look, if you fail, we'll just become employed somewhere else. It's no big deal. Let's try it. And I had worked with multiple, um, vascular surgeons and general surgeons who were private practice in Louisiana where I did residency and they would go to multiple hospitals and they were solo or part of a small group. And it's like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And so that's what we did. Um, but make no mistake, my husband was a, a huge part of this. He was really the, the driving factor because he looked at just really the amount of money we were going to give up um, if we became employed. And he's like, let's see what we can do. And we just hit the ground running and haven't looked back. And when you look back at this, um, where did he get
0: that uh, information? And how did he know that you'd be making so much less? And how was he involved in the first
1: place? Tell us a little bit more about your husband. So my husband is, um, ex-military. He is, he actually left the military to get married. And and so he, his parents were entrepreneurs in the area. They were restaurateurs. Um, his mom had multiple houses in the area, um, apartments really. And so he had always had this very entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and he did his research. I mean, he looked to say, okay, you need this many vascular surgeons per this much population. Here's what MGMA data shows. And he's like, look, you can do this. I just need you to bring your skill set." Um, and so because he came with me on my interviews and he would ask these hard questions like, okay, well, how much is the, you know, the starting partner, the, per- the person who started this practice, how much are they getting from this? And they'd say, Oh, nothing. You know, my husband would go through these contracts and, and he has a bit of a, at one point I thought about going to law school and he probably should have. Um, but he's a, a very analytical mind. He reads all the contracts and he he'd say, well, tell me about this $10,000 a year that goes back towards the practice. And what is that for? they be like, well, that's actually for the starting partner. And we, we use that for this and that. And the other thing he was like, yeah, okay, we're done. Either you take that out or forget about it. And I interviewed all over the country, probably 20 different places. And he looked at what MGMA data was and he looked at what they were willing to pay me, which was about to start with probably about 25% of MGMA. He's like, this is stupid. This is because you're female. This is because they're, you're pregnant. And I think you don't want to work. He knows that, you know, to an extent I'm, I'm a good worker. You know, I'm not somebody who, who does half of things. Um, I put in the time I put in the hours. And so he knew kind of what I was capable of. He's like, if you fail, you become employed. What's the downside. And so that's kind of what we did. And he, did all the legwork with the insurance companies and um he probably went through about hundred EMRs and narrowed it down to five and I picked the one that we were gonna use. He was really instrumental and and still is. You know, he does um all the payroll, he's looking at the books, he's saying, you know, I really don't want to do any more of these procedures because we're not making any money off of it. Can't you do something else? Or how much are we getting paid for this or that or the other thing? He's been really a, a huge part of this whole thing. I couldn't do it without him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that gets down to like one of the main Premises behind private practice is that you really have to have the right team and you have to have people that are there and helping and motivating. I mean, you can do what's called a micro practice and have as very little as possible, but you know, really to have any kind of, you know, average size or small, even small size, having that team in place is so helpful. So it sounds like your husband was was absolutely critical in setting up private practice. Where did you guys go for information and where to find all this about setting up the practice?
1: He pretty much googled everything. Um, I was at the time very pregnant, not really very mobile, um, finishing fellowship, exhausted, studying for boards. you know, I took my my vascular written boards, pregnant. Um, and he did all of that himself. So we used MGMA data. and then every group that we would interview with, he would start gleaning things from their practice managers and ask them about insurance contracts and ask them about, all of these different issues and talk to other private groups in town, be it internal medicine or GI and say, how are you doing this? How are you doing that? And then, um, you know, talking to the local uh, medical um, medical society meetings and, and just talking to people more and more and more until he figured out, okay, this is how we're going to do this.
0: That's great. Because I mean, I know I have a great office manager as well. And I think having someone there that's, you know, running interference and finding all the information and searching all the sources is really something that, that is absolutely crucial for having a private practice.
1: And what were some of the pitfalls that you made early on? That's a good thing. So just learning, you know, what needs to go into your EMR notes. So I remember at one point, we hired these two people for the front office, and they were putting in, you know, every medication listed on the mar in the hospital to each encounter, which was just a stupid amount of time or knowing what are the global periods for each procedures and what you can build for and what you can't, um, you know, those were, were two huge issues, even knowing, like, how do you schedule things? How are you going to get things done? And, and how do you structure your life so that you can not only practice, but also um, be efficient with your time in the operating room? So things like, okay, I'm going to do half a day. I'm only going to do endovascular procedures today, but I'm going to do half a day at this hospital and half a day at that hospital. Well, that just didn't work. There was, there was always a disaster when I did that. Um, So for me, I tend to operate at one hospital a day, if at all possible. Um, and, And just learning, you know, how do you code things? What's an appropriate way to code? What are the modifiers that go along with that? Um, I know that uh, Society of Vascular Surgery has a meeting that I'll be going to this year that that talks about appropriate coding and billing. Um, I think ACS does as well, although I haven't been to that class. Um, and, And that's those are huge issues when it comes to learning how to make money.
0: I completely agree because you know the whole idea of the money cycle is something completely different than we've ever been taught before. We haven't really had to worry about that. And a lot of compliance issues are so critical to know about, like to be able to get the billing, it has to be based on the insurance contract that you have, and it has to uh, state exactly like the ICD-10 and the, and the CPT code have to match, um, and they have to be something that the insurance company have already been contracted to um, have them pay for modifiers based on different things and just like you mentioned the global period as well because if you code this wrong or charge it incorrectly for one thing either won't get paid or they'll come back later and you know expect repayment or you could even be accused of fraud there's certainly a lot of aspects to that part that you know can be a little intimidating unless you know the rules
1: absolutely if i was going to do this all again or without my husband, um, I would 100% have a micro practice, I would know how to do every single part of everything in the office. Because the other thing you have realized, it's kind of like a restaurant, you know, people can walk out at any time and leave you and you're now stuck. And how do I send a fax? How do I get authorization? How do I do things like, you know, send pre-op orders, and you need to know how to do every single thing. And so if I were to start all over again, I would have one, maybe two people in the very beginning. I would just have myself. I would be very selective with the insurances that I took and I would do everything myself. That's how I would do it. If I had to do it all over again by myself. Um, But my husband has really given me a lot of tools so that I can focus more so on being a physician and less so on being a business manager. Yes. And I
0: think that having that time to spend on your business is something that uh, is important for private practice because, you know, taking the time for us to be aware of what the rules are and how it's changing and, you know, just even reinforcing the people that are already doing it, like our office manager and our billing and collecting folks and all all the things is understanding what their jobs are. And I like, you know, how we move to the second point, which is really, you know, kind of expecting everyone to leave. I mean, I think that, that the best way to manage your mind around private practice is just expect that every single person in your practice has the ability and, and will likely leave. And what that does is creates an incentive for you to find out what they're doing and then seeing if they can you know, write these standard operating procedures, you know, document what they're doing, to the point where you can understand um, what they're doing. So if they leave, or or if, you know, not even permanently, at least suddenly, like a, a leave of absence, that you're not left not knowing what they're doing and how to reproduce that.
1: Absolutely, knowing who's doing what, how are these things getting done within your practice? For instance, um, between MAs, you know, things would magically show up in my chart. So I would see a post-op patient, pathologies there, notes are there, my post-operative notes there. New MA, none of that's there. So I have to go back into the computer. That's now taking more time to sign on to the hospital EMR. Um, so a quick post-op visit now becomes 20s, and then you know reviewing pathology, all of those things take extra time. But I had to know that she was putting those things in and make that part of the job. Um, so knowing who's doing what can make you much more efficient long run. I think part of the thing that as surgeons, we don't always realize is that you need to take time out of your week, um, be it on the weekend, early morning for administrative duties and, and schedule that time in not only for yourself for days off, but for your practice. So you can catch up on things because there are all of these things that will just get wildly out of hand. If you don't sit down and make time for it and literally put it in your schedule and say, I am not seeing patients today. I'm not doing cases today. I'm not on call today. This day is reserved for whatever it needs to be. And it's, it's absolutely critical.
0: I I completely agree. I think that's the biggest uh, misconception we have about literally anything, you know, whether that's clinic or, you know, everything that we do in our practice and even our our home life is, you know, taking time to do some of these things that we don't give time to, because we could push it to the side thinking that it's not important, but it does add up. And then you're in over your head. Completely agree. Now, take us through some of the personnel challenges that you've had and what you would have maybe done differently.
1: Um. Wow. Personnel challenges. So everything from people not showing up to work to people not being able to do the job that you asked them from for. Um. You know, hiring and firing. Again, this is something that my husband is used to doing in his old job, and he does. I'd say ninety nine percent of that. I have the final say when it comes to who my MA is and give input as to what we're looking for, but don't be afraid to fire someone. Don't be afraid to say, look, you are not the person that you said you were, and this is not what I need right now. And you're not meeting these goals. And so we need to move on. And so keeping people too long, we felt obligated or we felt bad for them or this is still a business. So you have to have the ability to say, this is not working for me. It's time to move on. And that's been very, very difficult, but I think necessary and understanding that a big part of what you need to do as someone who owns a small business is hire and fire people. One of the big
0: disadvantages that people might leave, but the advantages is that you could let people leave, um, which is, I think, what some of the things that i struggled with um when i was employed was and also in the military of being stuck with people that are not a good fit that are actually not helping you and the the one advantage of private practice is that you know they work for you they don't work for this nameless entity that and you feel like you're not really in this hierarchy at all um so i think that's i think the biggest advantage of private practice is that we can pick the people that fit best with us and you know we are there to help them and make them better, and they're incentivized to help us.
1: And we can make the decision for them not to stay if that's what's in our best interest. A hundred percent. And I think you know incentivizing people who work for you to stay is also a big part of it. So whether it's giving them a raise every so often, or paying for them to take extra courses, um, we have you know paid time off and the potential for benefits. I think all of that's very necessary to retain people that that are good workers and a good fit for your office. And we don't necessarily know what that looks like when you start. Um, but again, that's something that my husband helped create so that we can retain people and give them things that make them happy. It also allows you to attract people that maybe wouldn't fit at a conventional office. Personnel problems would be you know, taking people who have um, restrictions on when they can work, whether they're working part-time because they're doing something novel for you, like an ultrasound technologist, or they have childcare issues. And so how can you think out of the box so those people can still work for you if they are a good fit otherwise? So are they going to do Saturday, um, Saturday hours or are they going to come in on Sunday for coding? Are you going to have late days or early mornings? Are you going to stagger your staff? These are all things that you can do to optimize your, your people and still give them a good quality of life.
0: That's great. I mean, and that's where we can, you know, kind of own that whole idea of the, the small business of, you know, really helping people around. And that's the one thing that I like about my current practice is that I can give people a chance and be flexible and, you know, give them uh, additional things that can help income and, and be flexible, which is really helpful. I know that you've taken some time off and how did that work?
1: So I do a lot of teaching in Europe. I do some kind of more innovative um, endovascular procedures that not everybody is doing. I think a lot of people in the U.S. are doing them, but they're not as well known in Europe. Um, cars, endovascular dialysis access. And so I teach at a um, conference in Prague, which we found because it happens to be right next to where my husband's family lives. It's in the same town, actually. And so I've taught there for the last few years. And then now I've been asked to teach in um, Egypt as well at a similar type of conference. And so um, when I take time off, I have multiple people who cover for me because I do both vascular and general. So I may have anywhere from six to 10 people covering different potential parts of my practice. And before I go away, I really try not to operate no big cases for two weeks, I tend to only do general surgery cases if I can help it other than like maybe a fistulogram before I go. And then, um, that whole week before I leave is all clinic. So I will try to just see clinic patients, anything that's urgent. Say somebody comes in with new cancer. I will flat out tell them I can't take care of you until I come back on this date. So you probably need to see somebody else. Or maybe it's something like, well, we don't know what this is yet. We need to get a biopsy of this breast cancer. Okay. I come back in three weeks. I can see you then we'll have a biopsy. We'll set you up with Oncology, radiation oncology, plastic surgery, and kind of decide on a course from there. And so that's set up really months and months ahead of time, both for call, for coverage. Um, and I still take my cell phone. I still have all of my office numbers sent to my cell phone. So my office staff will get a hold of me 24 seven. And I pretty much never leave my phone. So when patients call me after hours, I take those calls. Um, But I also prepare all my patients. So before I go away, my patients know, hey, I'm going to be out of town. And yes, you can call me with an emergency. But if you can wait until I get back, this is gonna be the best time to reach me. And I start preparing those patients really months before I leave, because a lot of my patients I see on a regular basis. So they have some idea of sort of how my, my life goes and what my summer looks like.
0: I think it's a great point, um, preparing the patients, and so they know what to expect. And it sounds like even though you have your phone with you, it sounds like you have some pretty strong, you know, boundaries of what you will and won't won't take. Because I know a lot of times people may be stressed by saying, oh, I I can never leave my phone. But, you know, I, I know kind of how you feel and the fact that I like having it there. And I think if you set yourself up well, then you are oftentimes only bothered if it's really something that needs your attention.
1: Well, I'm also checking with my office every day. So, you know, it used to be even 10 years ago, if you went out of the country or you went on a cruise, you didn't have any cell reception, you didn't talk to anybody for a week and it was really kind of scary. But now, you know, you can do phone calls over the internet. You can text people 24 seven. So every day my office would text me or ask me questions and I can talk to them for free over the internet. So even though you're leaving, it's it's not like there's no way to know what to do next, how we're going to take care of this. And so I was able to really manage most everything that needed to get done from my phone.
0: What do you see as some of the challenges coming in the future? Um, I know that the proposed Medicare cuts are are one thing, but, you know, let's talk first about the reimbursement changes. Now, obviously this is across the board, so we are all going to be affected in some way, but I do think, you know, us private practice physicians will see this first. What is your take on the
1: the current, I
0: guess, economic landscape?
1: So I think that the issue that most of us are going to have is that people want to get paid more so inflation is through the roof but we're not getting paid anymore we're actually getting paid less especially when you look at cost of living and inflation costs so even when medicare says hey we're not going to give you any cuts but we're not going to give you a raise you're not really getting a raise you're actually getting a pay cut and so learning how to maximize um, the cases that you do whether that's done in an outpatient center or buying stock in an outpatient center or doing particular cases or not doing particular cases and learning you know, what is your best bang for the buck when it comes to reimbursement, knowing how much those cases pay, knowing how to appropriately code. Um, I think that it's gonna be very tough. And so at some point, many of us, including myself, are gonna have to decide, is it worth it to stay in private practice? So for me personally, looking at what I would make as a, a private, physician say in an employed practice versus what I do, um, being, you know, private practice on my own, the things that really make it, even if I made the same amount in both situations, it's my autonomy and it's my tax benefits. You know, your meals that you have with your office staff, that's a tax write-off. Anything that you buy for your office, again, that's a tax write-off. If you're employed you can't do that anymore because now you're employed and you don't have a business that you need to take care of. And so you lose all of those tax benefits, not to mention that they're going to say you get this much of time to take off and you must be back by this date. And that's it. You know, you have this many days and we expect you to be back this time and no, you can't be gone for a month at a time. And that's not acceptable and we don't really care. So that's going to be the big issue is at what point is this no longer worthwhile to me. Um, and I think it's when the price or what I get paid is going to be less than what I would make, not only as a an employed surgeon, but when the tax benefits and the autonomy no longer becomes worthwhile.
0: Right. I, I completely agree. I, I mean, it can be more difficult as our overhead is going up based on, you know, all the things that going on in the world, but then our pay getting cut that, you know, the margins are definitely less, but autonomy is worth a lot. And especially if you can hire the people to help you. So I can tell you that some of my office staff actually hiring them has given me time back. And at the time of my career, I'm much more interested in autonomy and time back than I am in more money. At the same time, there's a time when the model makes sense and a time when it doesn't. But also being employed is not necessarily going to save you from that because you lose your autonomy. You may lose some time and efficiency and your ability to choose staff, your flexibility with your time. But also, you know, these pay cuts are going to be across the board. And so you'll see this change in the employed contracts and what they pay and what you get back. So I think we're seeing the effects of all that's going on in medicine. Um, that trickle-down effect is going to affect us all. And I think what you're going to find is a lot of people, not just in private practice, but in general, deciding that it's not worth it. And so I definitely think we're in a bit of a crisis in the medical field about people deciding whether they're going to stay or not. And that's going to influence all of us as we get older and need help and need you know, health access. It's going to be a huge problem.
1: Well, We already know there's a physician crisis. There's a physician shortage. There's also a surgeon shortage. In addition, there's a nursing shortage, but you can train a new nurse in 18 months. And so we can kind of recoup some of that labor very quickly, but to get a board-certified surgeon or even a a well-trained surgeon, that takes years, minimum five years after residency. So you're talking about nine years start to finish after college. If you include college, you're talking about 13 years minimum, you know, a nurse can come right out of high school, do a RN program or a diploma bill program, and they can be a nurse working on the floor in 18 months, maybe two years. So I don't think that the majority of the population understands what a resource and how limited it is to be a physician and how we need to take care of our colleagues. So the country's in for a real shock once people start leaving the profession.
0: I agree, and it feels like it's already underway. And I think that we're not seeing those effects quite yet. But I think that what's already been happening today is going to affect us years down the line that we don't even necessarily see that yet. Um, and it's like turning a big ship. I mean, it's going to take a little while to get that back in line.
1: Um, I mean, I know people that don't want to be physicians, and I certainly have talked to many medical students who have no interest in being surgeons because they see how we're treated, they see how hard we work, and they just don't want to do it. So who are these surgeons going to be in 10, 15, 20 years when the rest of us are sick and need help?
0: I would love to have the answer to that.
1: I have no idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I do think though, um, us looking at our options, because the one power that we do have as physicians what we've kind of talked about is, you know, our ability to be flexible. The one thing that I think is very helpful for us to keep in mind as surgeons um, is our transferable skills. Like we did achieve the skills. We have the ability to use these skills in multiple different ways. And I know that providing some flexibility with locums is something that we, we both talked about. What are your thoughts on that as
1: a strategy? So I think using locums as a way to either supplement your income um, or give you a different perspective, give you a break from whatever you're doing is a great thing to add. I do think that overall, when I look at other Facebook groups, people are not getting paid what they're worth. That especially as women, as mothers, we're taught to say, oh, thank you so much for giving me $500 a day. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And that's just ridiculous. Um, You know, I really don't think anybody should take for even general surgery less than $1,000 a day, plus an hour minimum. I would say that, you know, even with that, that better be at a community hospital where you're getting called once or twice a day and have minimal people on the floor. If you're at a busy center, if you speak multiple languages like I do, you need to command anywhere from three to $5,000 a day. And if all of us collectively said, this is what we want, this is how much we're getting, we could do that. The problem is that we don't do that. And so they're, they're using people who are the lowest bidders and realize that when you do that, it's not the locum, it's not the hospital that's that's losing money. It's actually the locums company is making money off of you because they're going to charge the hospital six, seven, eight grand a day, no matter what. So, you know, when we say, okay, well, we're willing to take this, you're actually arguing with the locums company. So you can make more money from the locums company. We just have to say as a group that we're not taking this. This is ridiculous. And this is the service that we provide. And this is how we're going to do it. So I think it's a great opportunity. Um, I just think that we are selling ourselves too short. And this goes as well for local call as well. I think the majority of people are not putting out there what they're worth. And when they say fair market value, we're taking that based off of, you know, these big corporations. And what they say is fair market value. But really, all of that needs to go up because, you know, your insurance, your malpractice is going up, inflation's going up. We all need to make more money and that needs to come to us as well.
0: I agree. I think a lot of people don't realize how much Locum's companies are making on us. And you probably have some suspicion with the amount that we've been contacted by Locum's companies and how aggressive their tactics have been. Uh, It does provide some flexibility for sure, though. So it's helpful to have backup and helpful to have some different avenues. What other strategies are you using to kind of protect yourself with private practice? Because uh, I know that financially, like month to month, it could be very different. Um, so I guess first, what are some of the things that you're using to protect yourself? And the second is how do you manage your mind around all the variability of income?
1: So we really live well below our means. And that is probably the number one thing that I would tell people to do. There is this sense that Everyone, you know, if you're a physician, you need to drive the newest car. You need to have a big house. You need to make a, you know, have a beautiful pool. I live in Florida, so everybody lives on the water. And um, we live in a house that my husband bought when he was 23 in the military. And we may or may not move. We may do some upgrades, but we could live in our house very comfortably without doing much else, um, you know, on very, very minimal money. I'm talking about probably less than a thousand dollars a month. If you didn't include food. Um, so I think living below your means is the biggest way that I can say to protect yourself. It's also going to mean that you can retire earlier. So if you have a house that requires, let's say, $100,000 between taxes and electricity and um, you know lawn care and everything a year, you're going to have to work for that money every year on top of your other living expenses. If you live pretty simply and you don't need to have, you know, a thousand dollars a month in lawn care and your taxes aren't 20 grand a year and you don't need to have your pool redone or pay a pool person every month, your cost of living is really going to go down. So that would be my number one thing to tell people is live well below your means. Um, You know, people see my car and I, I drive a used Passat, and they're like, well, why do you drive that? Why aren't you driving a Porsche? Why aren't you doing this? Why don't you have a bigger ring? Why don't you, you know, have more flashier stuff? And the answer is, I want to retire earlier. I really don't care. And frankly, I don't want people to think I have a lot of money, even if I do. I think that sets you up for getting sued. I think that sets you up for patients not to like you. And I think it sets you up for being resented by your colleagues. So I would say live simply and boil your means is the number one way to not really care about how much you make month to month i know how busy i am i know how to get busier i know how to cut back and i know it's all going to even out so i don't really care i don't i try not to look at the books frankly and you know looking at the books like i could tell you you know there's certainly like some element of mind
0: drama because you know one month will be great and one month will not and um and it's really hard to predict exactly what you are make i mean it definitely has to be worked on a average And, you know, we were finding lately that, you know, getting insurance reimbursement is slower and slower uh, to the point where we call an insurance company, they'll say, call us back in 30 days, call us back in 60 days. One said, call us back in 90 days. These are things that we've already done. So, you know, doing the work is one thing. It's getting the money back from it. That's another. Uh, When you're employed or production-based, you know, they pay based on an amount that would Average all that out, so you kind of have some idea of what you're getting. But I know in private practice it varies significantly, and you could tell, you know, the holidays are a little bit slower, and you know, different times are, are different. um And it certainly can be challenging each month to say, I feel like I worked for you know so hard, but you know, why isn't it reflecting on this month? And of course, it's really reflected on what happened one, two, maybe three months beforehand. So you know, the ability to not you know, I guess it's probably analogous to looking at the stock market. You know, if you know that in general, you're going to make this general trend upward, it's helpful, but you know, the, the daily, the month to
1: month averages and um, changes can be a little bit jarring. So another thing that I try to do is look at my surgery schedule and then use that to kind of gauge how busy I am or how busy I want to be and what I expect the next few months to look like. So this month we've had a, a lot of, unexpected things happen. My husband had to go out of town for a bit. I've had to be essentially a single parent. I had to change my schedule. I had to change my operating schedule. I brought my son to work with me. So, you know, I know that going forward, this month is not going to be a great month and we're going to see a huge drop, but I really don't care because I know what it was two months ago before we left on vacation. And I I use that time when I'm not super busy To say, okay, this is my time to catch up. This is my time to spend time with my children. This is my time to work on myself or to look back on other patients and see where I can improve, to look at my prior patient lists and to kind of catch up on things. And and instead of saying, I wish I was busier, I wish I had more cases, use that time to relax and do something for yourself. So don't think about your downtime or times when you're not busy as, I wish I was busier, but more so, what can I use this time for to be more efficient? I completely agree. And, you know, planning ahead for
0: those gaps in time and preparing, because again, it'll be at a time when you come back from vacation and you're catching up, you know, the punitive aspect of vacations, when you'll, you'll note that the, the amount is the lowest. And that's the time usually when you feel like you're working the most. And so expecting those delays and avoiding the trap of scarcity is probably the
1: most helpful aspect when it comes to that. Or, you know, like you said, just don't look at it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I know we look at it I know at least once a month and my husband looks at it on a daily basis, but in my mind, it doesn't really make a difference because I know that I can catch up. I know what this is from. So there's no reason for me to get upset about it. It's kind of like, if you're trying to lose weight and then you go out and you have you know, a really nice dinner and you have a couple of glasses of wine and then the next day you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm up three pounds. How did that happen? Well, you know, that two days later, half of it's water weight. In that you're going to eat, get back on track, and you're going to lose the weight again. So you just have to have that mindset. You can't sit there and dwell on it because it's not helpful. I think this is a great comparison.
0: Absolutely true. Focusing on a lot of the non-monetary things. Because you mentioned you know your husband had to take off and you had to adjust your schedule. And a lot of people that are in you know these big box groups, um, the way that they manage these big volumes of people is they have a lot of roles. Um, and that includes being relatively inflexible about your schedule and changing the schedule so many of these non-monetary benefits are some of the advantages of private practice you know even if the amount that you take home isn't as much and a lot of times it, it can be less it can be more um and so a lot of it's knowing your market who, what your payer mix is what you would expect to to do and a lot of the ways that you manage it but it's really important to know the area that you're in but also focusing on the non-monetary
1: benefits is where I think private practice really shines. There is nothing better than changing your own schedule. I had 24 hours notice that my husband was going out of town and I completely changed my OR schedule, my patient schedule. I told people, this is when I wanna have clinic. This is the way I'm gonna do it. I won't see more than this many people and I need to leave by this time. So I scheduled appropriately. And being able to do that, being able to have a colleague call you and say, look, I have a new cancer patient. Can you, when can you get them in? And you say, can they come over now? That's a huge, huge plus for other physicians that, you know, know that they can call on you and that you can work their patients in. That's a huge way of getting referrals. You can't do that if you work for a big corporation for the most part, because they say, nope, we have X number of slots and it is what it is. So I have a hundred percent worked people in and stayed late. I've had office hours till eight o'clock at night some days because I chose to see more people and and it was five o'clock and we just added people on, but that's my choice. I wasn't told I had to do this. The other side of that is I get to decide what patients I want to see. We had a patient that was sent for genital warts from dermatology. I said, no, I'm not seeing that. I don't want this referral. Thank you, but no, thank you. And, you know, you can say, This isn't really what I want to focus on. This isn't what I want to do. Um, I don't want to do it. I don't do bariatrics. I don't really do foregut. And that's been my choice. Um, I love doing dialysis access. So I see a lot of that. I love doing, um, you know, a lot of these complex pain patients and finding out what's really wrong with them, whether it's leg pain, abdominal pain, mean ligament syndrome and not a lot of people are doing those sorts of things. So I can see more of them because I choose to. And I think that's a huge part of it is that you can do the cases you want to do when you want to do them and on your own time. No one's saying you must do bariatrics. You must take care of these patients. And that goes for consults too. If you're not on call, I get to say what I will and won't do. I get to say what pairs I will and won't take.
0: Right. Um, Now, One of the pitfalls sometimes uh, is covering for your patients. So how do you manage the coverage when you're
1: not there? So as I said, I have about six to 10 different people who cover for me. And so I'm in town almost every weekend. If I'm not in town, I've planned this out way ahead of time. I've talked to people and they know kind of where I am and what's going on. That being said, the ER will still call me and say, look, I have your patient. They had X, Y, Z. And what do you want to do about this? And I'll say, okay, so-and-so is covering for me or please get radiology to see that patient. Or I'll say, this is not something that our hospital can handle with or without me. And this patient needs to be transferred out. But I always have my phone on me and that's been very helpful. As far as rounding on the weekends, I have some colleagues and sometimes we'll take turns rounding. So this weekend I'm rounding for her. She rounded for me while I was away in Europe. But to me, rounding on the weekends you know, it's not that difficult and Mm. it's not usually a lot of patients either. I think something that people don't realize is you can either be really busy inpatient or really busy outpatient. And for me, in the beginning, I was very, very busy inpatient because I was taking about 28 days of call a month. And then I'm now taking only about four to six a month, which has been just a really different mindset, but I'm also seeing anywhere from 30 to 50 patients in clinic. So, I would much rather be busy outpatient with scheduled patients than inpatient. So, my inpatient census is usually less than 10 among several hospitals.
0: Wow. Now, let's say someone is interested in private practice. What are the ways that you would tell them to approach it now
1: with all the things that you know? So, first of all, you need to look at where do you want to live? If you know that you want to live in New York City, you're going to have a really hard time. You need to look at What is the percentage of physicians for that area and how much are they making in general? So big cities, usually on the East and West coast are technically, usually have too many surgeons, too many physicians. I know for a fact, New Orleans is another place where there are just too many surgeons. So starting a private practice from scratch in New York city, unless you are a very, very specialized physician and there aren't any of those is going to be very difficult. So if you were a general surgeon and said, I want to practice in New York City, I'd say, look, you're going to take a pay cut, you're in a very high cost of living And you have to just accept that. If you wanted to start a private practice and you could look in any part of the country, I would first look at where do they need physicians. And so that was one thing that we knew and that had actually changed during my training where they had several surgeons retire. So that was step one. Is looking at what's in your community. Where do you want to live? Step two would be what kind of support do you have? So if you did this aortic super fellowship and you want to do redo, redo, redo bypasses, that is not an appropriate private practice mindset because you really aren't going to get paid anything to do those cases. And you're going to be there in the operating room for eight hours, or you're going to make a thousand dollars, you're going to have all that post-op care that's not covered. You really need to go into academics. So you have to have the right mindset, understanding that you're going to make more money doing a couple, you know, intramuscular lipomas than you are doing a rudy aorta. And you, we can sit here and say, that's not fair. And why is that? And we should make more in academics. And you probably should make more in academics than we do. But this is kind of the system that we're in. So I had to give up some of those really fun, big cases because I don't have the support staff. I don't have the ICU staff. And also I need to stay afloat. This is still a business. So looking at what kind of cases you want to do, where you want to live, and then also who else is in your community? Who are the big groups in town? Do they need you? Do they want you? How receptive are they to have you there? What I didn't know coming into this was, yes, I was only one of three vascular surgeons in town, but there's a huge cardiology group that does probably the lion's share of the endovascular procedures. And so that was perplexing and I probably made some frenemies, if you will, because I disagreed with their care. But you have to know that ahead of time, kind of what you're getting yourself into, which I did not. So those two th- three things really you have to know going into it.
0: I completely agree. And, you know, a lot of times with a pair mix too, there are some ways to control some of that as well. You could either choose to accept or not accept certain insurances or, you know, decide like the, how much you're going to accept, whether, you know, like how often you want to see some of these types of, of pairs too. I think there's some ability of having some flexibility for that, if, if that's worth your time to take a look at. But I think all of your advice is is really excellent. What are some last words that you would have to anyone in private practice? You know, What would be your takeaway message to someone who's considering it?
1: To someone who's considering private practice, do not let what you were taught in your training influence you going into private practice. I think for a lot of us, especially when you go to the big meetings, you're sort of frowned upon and poo-pooed that, oh, you're in private practice, you don't really care about your patients, or you're only in it for the money. I would say to do it for the autonomy, to do it because you wanna do the types of cases you wanna do and that it's definitely doable. We're not taught these things, but we can be taught these things. And I think that it's, it's 100% something that we should all look into. And I would encourage anybody who's considering it to contact me or you or anybody else because it is definitely, definitely possible.
0: I completely agree. And I think looking at all the advantages and disadvantages um, all around before you choose a job is where it's most helpful. And I definitely think that private practice has lots of advantages that are more than just about the salary. Um, and I, I think that you've
1: offered a lot of really helpful gems in that respect. If there's somebody's thinking about joining a private practice, and you know, I've been looking for a partner for a long time. It's like finding a soulmate. It's like finding a marriage partner. You have to find someone who is a good fit. You have to find someone or a group where that's very transparent that lets you know kind of what you're in for. You have to talk to all of those people, see if you can work with those people and really try to go into it with your eyes open. So I, I would say that if you want to do private practice and you're looking to join someone we want everything laid out in black and white. I couldn't agree
0: more. I've definitely coached several people who have gotten into situations to where it was not readily apparent what the financial structure was, and uh, was very they were very surprised to realize you know what they actually had gotten into. Um, and some of these partnership agreements, you know, like holding that out as a carrot um, is you know maybe real and helpful, and some of it is, is really just misconceptions and, and challenges. And so I definitely agree that transparency, you know, getting along with a partner that you have, I could, I just got a new partner and I I couldn't be happier. Just, you know, having someone who's helpful, who listens, who um, is on the same page as you just makes your life so much easier. I agree. I'm still waiting for that, that person. We'll see. well hopefully this will help you know shine a light on private practice because i think the message that a lot of people are getting is that it's dead and i really don't think that it is you know there's certainly some challenges but the, the for me i personally i think some of those challenges are just so much more interesting and knowing what the system is is only going to help because i think not knowing what the system is you know, just because you're doing okay and don't aren't aware of what's going on under the hood doesn't mean you shouldn't know what's going on under there. And I think private practice certainly puts you in that position of learning a little bit more about what's going on under the hood of this whole um, business of medicine aspect. And I think it could only do you know good to learn all these things.
1: hundred percent, I would urge everybody to, even if you're employed, to really look at what is your pay structure, what does your contract say, and how you're getting paid? Where is this money coming from?
0: I agree. And although, just like I mentioned before, private practice will feel it first when when we see these economic changes, it's definitely coming down the line. There's no way to escape it. It's here. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I, I think you're also right in your respect of we should all band together, share information, share support, and really, you know, educate each other and find ways to stick together because that's how we're going to succeed in this.
1: I agree. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Kessel. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. I'm always willing to help anybody else who's looking into private practice. So I would have anybody contact me if they have any questions. Perfect.
0: All right. I'll put your contact information
1: on the show notes. And thank you again for joining me. Thanks a lot. Bye.